Hello, welcome again to the episode of the Let People Prosper series. My name is Dr. Vanskin. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today I'm delighted to have on someone that I've been following for a while now and who is another one of those liberty warriors who continues to fight for free markets and, uh, and freedom overall. He's just a great guy and a great economist. It's none other than Dr. Peter St. Ong. Peter, welcome to the Let People Prosper show. Thanks for having me on, Vance. Okay, good. And did I pronounce your last name correctly? You, you were 98% St. Ange. Ange. So it rhymes with orange, but I have gotten everything. I have been called Dr. Sponge before. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. There you go. There you go. And, and for the audience, we're recording this on August 22nd, 2023. Uh, so in case anything comes out between now and then. But, but you're right, Peter. I mean, a lot. my name, Vance Ginn, right? I've been called Vince Gill. Vince, Jen, you, you name it. I've been called a lot of names as well. <laughs> so never know. Uh, but for the audience, just real quick, let me read your bio because we just want to jump right into yeah. it. So Peter is an economist at the Heritage Foundation, a fellow at the Mises Institute, and a recovering MBA professor. He likes cutting through the crap and using straight language. He also puts out a weekly podcast, gathering up the daily videos. So it's P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E dot buzzsprout.com share on twitter you can find him at p-r-o-f-s-t-o-n-g-e be sure to check him out he always has some good analysis that's there quick and short uh, but also some good videos and and so um, be sure to check that out so let's get this started man um you know why yep. do you do what you do every day uh, honestly it might sound silly but to make the world a better place uh, i started my career in corporate marketing so i started in big telecoms infrastructure systems in latin america and then i went into toys at Takara Toy uh, Limited, which uh, they make the Transformers, so big Japanese toy company. And that was good fun. It's creative. But honestly, I felt like I wasn't having an impact on the world. Uh, it disturbed me. The people whose lives are getting ruined by largely by the government, uh, by the powerful who use the government against them. And so I went back to get the PhD in economics. I figured people would listen to me at that point. And, you know, so now I work at Heritage Foundation. I do these daily videos where I build them as talking about economics and freedom. But the idea is to kind of pull back the curtain. You know, a lot of the crap they pull, they rely on the fact that regular people, they have their own life. You know, they don't have time to sit around and like learn how fiat currency works or how, you know, the banking bailouts work or something. And so these guys, they get up there, they've got the podium and the cameras and, you know, this this almost uh, mystical imagery, especially with the Fed, you know, they've got the pyramid with the eyeball. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of creepy. Yeah. So they have this whole song and dance and then they've got the acronyms and they got the PhDs and you got Jerome Powell with all this complicated terminology and all of it is BS. It is smoke and mirrors to hide what they're doing. And when you look through that stuff, it is breathtakingly simple. It is banditry. It's theft. It is deception. It's crushing you. It's stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. And it makes me sick. Yep. Well, well same here. And uh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. How long have you been doing this now with the daily videos? Uh, those just started in March. Uh, yeah. I actually used to do them. So I was teaching an MBA program and, you know, the students are uh, hungover. <laughs> and you got to get them out of bed. Yeah. And so I would start this thing every lecture. I would start with like a little five minute song and dance about whatever's happening. in the. And the idea was to remind the students that like strategic marketing is not just this abstract thing, but, you know, we can apply it. So Facebook mm. is doing this or, you know, and so I would do that every morning and the students enjoyed it. And I like doing it. 
And so now that I'm not in the classroom anymore, I figured, well, you know, I really did like doing that. And what the banks, which bank was it? The first one that fell back in uh, March 11th, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley, yeah. So Silicon Valley Bank, they tank and my wife, you know, we're sitting there on a Saturday. My wife is like, why, why are the banks failing? And I said, mm. well, you got the thing and then you got the, you know, you got the assets. And, and she's like, okay, so let me grab a camera, put on a shirt and do it again. And so I did it again. And then she posted that. Huh. And I actually posted it saying, sorry, guys, it's my first video. <laughs> and then that got like 75,000 views. And we were like, okay, the market has spoken. There's, these are not only for hungover college yeah. students. Um, apparently, there's an appetite. And so we've been doing them now every single day for five months. Five wow. months now. That's awesome. Well, I, I've enjoyed it. I, I, I'm a consumer of, of what you're, what you're putting <laughs> oh, out. Good. That's right. That's right. And so there is a demand there. And so I'm glad you're supplying it because we need more of this critical thinking. We do. Um, yep. Just common sense economics that, that so many mm -hmm. people are selling us this, like you said, BS about what the economies are doing. And too many people have fallen for the Keynesian economics, that the economy is just this machine with these widgets that you can go and you know pull this, turn this wheel a little bit here yep. and pull this knob and everything's going to come out. And we're finding out pretty clearly that that is not the case, right? Yeah, well, right. Not only do they want you to think it's this giant machine, but they want you to think that there's this like God level class of experts and yep. only they have the magic touch where they can make the machine work. You better not talk about it. Don't even think about it. Like if you pleb regular voter, even think about the economy, you're going to break it. You need us yeah. experts. It's disgusting. And most people, they don't know any better. The, no. the education system, the media, you know, everything they're told. And I mean, it reminds you what happened in COVID where, you know, normally you trusted, you know, if your doctor said you take this medicine for high blood pressure, then you were probably sort of foolish to second guess that traditionally. Yeah. Um, but that uh, sort of credibility in the expert class, I think, came back and bit a lot of us in the butt. And I think that for all the horrors that we've seen over the past couple of years in the health sector, when it comes to the economy, in a way that's very good, that a lot of people, I think, have sort of lost their innocence over these past couple of years, and they do not believe the experts anymore, which is great in the economy because they should not yeah. believe the experts. When it comes to the macro economy, like inflation, recession, you can't believe any of these guys. If they're taking a government paycheck or if they're taking a grant from government, which is like 90 8% of the professional macroeconomists, uh, you cannot believe them. They are compromised. Yeah. I want to dig a little bit deeper into like your philosophy because you come back from like Mises Institute and you got heritage and everything else going on. You know, what are some of the schools of economics that kind of you apply your, your reasoning of, of the world in which we live? Yeah, so I started as a communist, as one does. Oh, really? Um, I grew up in Philadelphia. That's pretty close to uh, Thomas Sowell, right? He, he started, turned out as a socialist. For sure. First. <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought conservatives like wrestled alligators. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I was in Philadelphia. I'd never seen one before. Yeah, yeah. And my, my dad was a professor of education. So, I mean, like, that's like the source of the source of the source of the problem, right? Yeah. So he's like brainwashing teachers into communism so that they brainwash children into communism so that they become voters and so on. Um, my mom was a school administrator. I mean, I, I, I was like pretty close to red diaper. 
Yeah. Uh, and then as I went through high school, I discovered Milton Friedman, and that kind of opened which my book? eyes. You know, because I look. Which book did you read uh, first? Free to Choose okay. was the first one, and I had been interested. You know, specifically growing up in Philly in the eighties, you had a lot of homelessness, a lot of violence, a lot of things were getting worse. You had you had the uh, the riots, and then the damage from the riots was not rebuilt like 30 years later. I mean, right. So you had these, these neighborhoods that were just amazing. You could see old pictures where it was all these little stores and little kids running around and it was much, much poorer. Okay. Like 1930s Philadelphia was very, very poor, mm. but you had this community. Right. And then I look at it, uh, you know, back then in like the late eighties and I mean, everything was just horrific and everything's mm. boarded up. Uh, you know, you've got like one takeout joint with bulletproof glass mm. and, and it was like, what the heck happened? Because I know the prosperity went up, the GDP went up, but what happened? So anyway, that that you know got me kind of dissatisfied with the party line, and then that sent me off to looking for Friedman. And then I you know went to college for econ to learn more about it, kind of learn how does the world work, how do you make it better, uh, yeah. why does it get screwed up? And then in it wasn't until long after college, so 1999, uh, I was running around Tokyo looking for a book. Hmm. And I found a um, Mark Skousen's The Making of Modern Economics. Hmm. Yeah. And in that book, he goes through, you know, Marxism. I think he calls it Chicago School. Uh, and then he also talks about Austrian. Mm-hmm. And so I had never heard of Austrian economics. I, you know, I went through an entire econ program at McGill. It's a good school. Never even heard the name Rothbard, Mises, none of these. Uh, so, you know, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Another way to look at these things. And I can't remember exactly, like Skousen doesn't push the Austrians mm. necessarily, but he's very kind of Austro-friendly in how he represents them. And so I went out and looked up on the internet and found, you know, kind of went down the rabbit hole. And that took me, I mean, at this point, I'd say I'm 100% a Rothbardian, yeah. uh, very sympathetic to, you know, Hans Hermann Hoppe's opinions of political organization. And so, you know, when I talk about the economy or the Fed or federal policy, uh, I'm really coming from an Austrian perspective. I don't call it Austrian, probably yeah. because I don't think I need to. Like Austrian yeah. economics is classical economics, right? Okay, right. Like it, it, it. I mean, you could basically take out the you know Keynesian slash Marxism mistake, and if you just cut that out, you look at economics all the way going from like the 1400s, the Spanish scholastics, all the way to the quote unquote Austrians today. It's the same freaking thing. Yeah. Right. So yeah. like in in my mind, I would prefer that we don't even call it Austrian economics. This is called classical economics. So I make yep. classical economists. And, you know, there's a number of huge differences between how classical economists look at things and how basically socialists do, i.e. Keynesians and Marxists. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, the socialists tend to see uh, money as as this special, this like super thing outside of the economy because what they're trying to get at is that the government has to be there and Mm -hmm. should be this wise master like a jedi council that (laughs) you know controls everything in the world yeah whereas classical economists saw money as just a good it's like anything else you know people demand it people will supply it you you know buy money with goods and you do that because you're saving up for the future and then if you have too much money I don't know, let's say you're 82 and, you know, you're ready to spend down your fortune, then you sell the good, you know, you you sell the money and so on. So that kind of framework where it's kind of demystified, right, where rather than having this regular economy and then this special separate magic room where the government people get to hang out 
yeah. which is kind of the Keynesian view of things. Rather than that, classical says, look, they're all the same, right? Yeah. You have people who are self-interested. They're self-interested if they're running a company. They're self-interested if they're running a government. Okay, humans are greedy. They're constrained by incentives and institutional rules and this and that. So everything is on equal footing. You look at it all as one sort of holistic whole. And once you see it that way, I think a whole lot of the smoke and mirrors just automatically fall away. Yeah. No, Peter, I think that's a good way to put it. And I, 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 I adhere to a lot of what's in the Austrian school. I do think they kind of tell the best story about the economy and how, you know, it's a study of human action, right? And, and the interaction right. within these exactly. institutions that satisfy our desires given scarce resources. And so I, I've learned a lot over time. Like I started off too with Friedman, um, Capitalism and Friedman, uh, Fre Friedman, Capitalism and Freedom was the first book that really got me in this direction. And, and then over time with Hayek, you know, Road to Serfdom and, and things of that nature, mm -hmm. Human yep. Action by Mises, the, the work by James Buchanan, Public Choice has really taught me a lot. And then Douglas North in Institutional Economics, that's kind of yep. where I, I, I consider myself just a free market economist, you know, I just, yeah. because the, there are these different schools, like you're saying that we get caught up too much in the schools. When um, Peter Betke, right, he, he puts it as mainline economics. I kind of like that a lot, too. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Instead of the mainstream that's out there, there's this mainline, which goes back nice. to what you were talking about from Adam exactly. Smith on. You know, it, let's put all this together. Yep. I had Matt Mitchell on recently, and he's also of that kind of mindset but from the George Mason School. They have a lot of good work there. Yep. But it's but it's interesting how much that and you mentioned this earlier about politicians or getting in government. And, and look, I, I worked in government for a year. I was the chief economist for the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House from June 2019 to May of 2020. It was an interesting experience as someone who is more of an academic and a policy guy. It was thrown into the lion's den of politics on steroids and what you uh -huh. can push and what levers. And, you know, it, it was but it was it was eye opening in the sense of how much goes on from government to try to orchestrate what's going on in the economy. And, and we can't do that, right? From the left or from the right, we've got to make sure that we're allowing people to have freedom. That's my whole let people prosper thing is like, get government out of the way. That's going to be the best way to prosper. Right. We've got to have more of that happening because we're seeing all around us that the more government gets involved in like healthcare, we're getting worse for, for higher costs. Oh, yeah. Education. Oh, absolutely. Same thing. It's like yeah. one thing after another. And and so I think you're right on that we've really got to start getting back to the basics, really, in economics, you know? What's fascinating for me, so I, we have moved the family around to a number of countries, and yeah. we were about five years in Taiwan. That's actually where I was teaching. I was teaching an MBA program in Taiwan, hmm. uh, which has no ideological... You are free to say whatever you want. I hmm. could actually praise Trump in the classroom, which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but at any rate, and... What was amazing for us is that if you walk around somewhere like Taiwan, you get an image for what a country looks like if the government is much smaller. Hmm. Okay, so the, the streets are just, I mean, full of life. Uh, you've got little vendors, uh, you know, little tiny stores. Like we used to walk, we would literally walk like 10 miles just taking a walk hmm. once a week with my wife. We just walk around town because it was so interesting because every little street had its own personality. There was so much stuff going on. You know, I was talking earlier about uh, in Philadelphia, you go back to the 1930s and the streets were so alive. They, uh, just to give a flavor of it, there was a baseball field in Philadelphia called Shine, I think it's Shine Park. Hmm. And what happened is the, the houses surrounding the baseball stadium, right? If you went up on the roof of those houses, you could see in and you could huh. watch the game, right? So yeah. what people did was they reinforced the top of their roofs and they put in bleachers. Yeah. Okay. 
And then, you know, because it's a bunch of row houses, you got a bunch of kitchens in the bottom, right? So each kitchen was doing up, you know, you got spaghetti, you got hot dogs, you got whatever. And then they would they would climb up on these, um, you know, scaffolding on the back of the houses and they would go up and sell this stuff. Wow. So, and, you know, you didn't have to get a license. You didn't have to get permission. Why would you open a kitchen and poison people on purpose? Give me a right. break, right? I mean, yeah. just like, you know, tr trust people for a change here. You know, so that kind of paints a picture of, you know, I think when a lot of people think of free markets, they're thinking yeah. like the Koch brothers or something yeah. like that. And for me, yeah. what animates me is that uh, sort of community level free market, right? Yeah. So like if people understood what their communities would look like, you know, like today we might have a random lemonade stand, but like multiply that by a thousand. Now you do see spots of that where the state is so incompetent that it doesn't chase people down. <laughs> so you have an example, if you go to New York, and you go down to the subway now. See, when I was living there, I was living there 20 years ago, and you didn't have these, but now you do. You get down to the subway, and you've got these vendors who set up at the end of the uh, subway platforms. Mm. And they're selling chicles and, and newspapers mm. and, I guess, uh, you know, wrapped up tamales and whatever. And that, that, it's like this tiny, it's almost like a weed growing from, like, a concrete parking lot or something. You know, it's, it's, it's like this tiny little green shoot of yeah. that's the free market that we're talking about. So yeah. now if you could just let that bloom, right, you could let every property owner decide exactly, you know, if they got a vacant lot, do they want to, you know, let vendors go there and, yeah. you know, uh, it, I don't know, little pop-up restaurants. Yeah, let's build onto this a little bit because this wasn't even the direction we were going. We just wanted to talk. I, I really just want to talk to you <laughs> and, um, and everything. And I, I, I think what's interesting about this, though, is kind of the vision. Something I think that we that doesn't get discussed enough is what is the vision for the future or, right. or, or where have we been? And I think you're bringing up some great points there because to me, I think you're exactly right. It's about civil society. It's about us helping yep. each other as, as families, communities, synagogues, churches, mm -hmm. um, nonprofits, whatever it's going to be, but that the government doesn't is getting in the way with all that. I mean, if you, if you think back right. you know, hundred hundred years to your point, people were helping out other people. It, it wasn't that the yeah. first line of defense that I'm going to go to is the government. It was government was the last line of defense. You didn't want to be on welfare. That that was a that was a bad thing. And nowadays it's like, yeah, I got my you know I got a government check. When are they going to send me another one? And and this is the new mindset that's going on. And so at some point, kind of my vision, Peter, is, and I love to see yours, hear yours too. Is I would love to see the day where we have a flourishing economy where there are jobs for those who who want them. There are ways to stay home if, if you want to. And, and that civil society is really um, flourishing and helping each other out to where we don't need government to be stepping in and taxing people, redistributing, you know, taxation is theft, right? Redistributing those resources around yeah. to people that they don't even know. And most of that's going to be siphoned off throughout the bureaucracy and administrative costs and everything else. That's not even helping the people we're trying to help. And, and that would then incorporate more innovation and, and more of those green shoots, like you were saying, to allow for people to prosper. I mean, that's really the, to let people oh, prosper. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, though. Yeah, absolutely. Here, uh, to give another example from Taiwan again, okay? Yeah, please. So I was with a group of people, and one of them lost their job, okay? And the other people in the group said, oh, what kind of business are you going to start? Hmm. See, yeah. be because there's almost no safety net. Yeah. But on the other hand, there's almost no regulation. Okay, so literally what's expected, like if you lose your job in Taiwan, what you do is there are these places where you can rent a food cart, like 20 bucks a day, 
Mm. And you go out and, you know, there's like signage shops. So, you know, you get a sign made up for 20 bucks and it says, you know, whatever you're going to cook. So um, Chinese uh, hamburgers. Okay. okay. So you're going to do guabao. You go out, you make up the sign, you, you, you grab something off the internet, you stick it up. Huh. Uh, okay, good. Now you got your sign, you rent your cart, you either get a friend to help you tow the cart somewhere. You can tow it with a moped or you just, I mean, you just push the cart. Yeah, and you push it to your new location. Some of the locations are managed by mafia, and so mm. there's a guy who you reach out to, and you know you set up a contract with him. No fuss, no muss. They, well, anyway. So you set up, you start selling your stuff at night. So now what you're doing is you're making an income at night. During the daytime, you're looking for a job. Mm. When you find a job, you take the cart back, you get your deposit back, you're good to go. Now the when the mafia is running these places. They have certain standards. It is extremely common sense. So, you know, so um, if you're not washing your dishes, let's say, then the other vendors will, you know, talk to the uh, sort of community manager guy and he'll come by and he'll say, you can't do that because that's making everybody look bad. So, mm. you know, you got to wash your stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, don't make me come back or you're going to be evicted. I mean, it's just extremely common sense. Yeah. Why? Because it's the landlord. Who is running the place functionally, right? From I mean, the mafia is pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the way, this is also true in Japan. Like, if you mention to Japanese that like the mafia runs the place better than the government, generally Japanese will agree, which is quite yeah. funny because Japanese have this image of being uh, obedient and whatnot. But even in Japan, the mafia is well known to be better at running things than the government. Huh. Um, but at any rate, so what you've done there is essentially imitated the. Uh, sort of free market version, right? Yeah. Where, yes, you have a landlord, you know, you don't have the coordination problem where everybody's just running willy-nilly and put their carts in front of each other and get into fistfights. No, you don't have that. You have perfect order because the landlord is incentivized to maximize the value of the property, Yeah. right? You would get this in a shopping mall too, right? I mean, strictly speaking, you know, a shopping mall also has a landlord. The landlord makes the rules. The problem is that the government comes in and puts this overlay hmm. where you know, either um, special interests, you know, there's some green power group that, you know, whatever wants some rules stuck in. Uh, it might be special interests as in like the restaurants don't want the vendors to be there because, you know, they're lower cost, you know, they take customers away. So government ends up becoming this auction where all these special interests can bid on rules that are going to punish their enemies. And at the end of the day, what you end up getting is just layer after layer after layer where every special interest is going to make a ton of money if they can get their rule passed. The costs are going to be spread over everybody else, right? This is the classic Manker Olson problem. Yep. Uh, and so you, you just get layer after layer. And, you know, indeed, if you look at like the uh, federal uh, registry of regulations, I, I, it's just like straight line growth. I, mm -hmm. I don't remember how many pages. I want to say 75 or 150,000 pages or something. It yeah. just grows at like four or six percent a year. No regulations ever go away. Once you buy a regulation, it's yours forever. Uh, so that's like the government version of doing stuff. And on the other hand, you have the, um, the the free market version, which really just means that the person who owns the thing is the one who gets to decide how to use it, right? And in that kind of a system where you know it's your property, you get to decide you get just such amazingly better outcomes. In fact, you get such good outcomes, you know, go back to the Taiwan situation. It is so easy to start a business because the people who have what you want for the business, right? They have the cart, they have the signs, they have the space. Those people want to help you. 
Yeah. Because they hope to make money from you, right? Yeah. Whereas the government is just a whole different ball of wax, right? The, yeah. And I mean, indeed, every so often the New York government cracks down on the people in the subway tunnels. You know, it, it never occurred to them to like license them. Uh, <laughs> right. Japan does license them. Okay. You know, if you're on a subway platform in Japan, there's always a little vendor there and she's got, you know, huh. she's got cold drinks and newspapers and whatnot. Uh, it just like it, it never occurred to them here. Uh, and the reason it doesn't is because the, the government is not profiting from it. Yeah. Right? The individual bureaucrats involved, their life is a lot easier if they just ban it. Yes. There's no upside to them. Right. So functional. But of course, life is much worse for the commuters. We're sitting on the subway platform and they might like to get a cold drink or they might like there to be eyes on the station in the middle of the night or something. So it's much worse for them, but they have no way of transmitting their preferences to the vendor. Right. The government is standing in the way. It's like blocking that. Yeah. Whereas free markets allow that to happen automatically. If the customer wants something, the entrepreneur will try to provide it to them. If the entrepreneur screwed up, then he's going to lose money and somebody else will do it or maybe he'll try again. Uh, but eventually, over a long enough period, you're going to have um, entrepreneurs that customers like. And, you know, when when we look at that, we're going to say, oh, that's an amazing place or that's a rich country. That's that's yeah. what we call prosperity. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and it builds on this entrepreneurship, right, to where, you know, we have to have failure. I, I don't know about you, Peter, but I've, I've failed a lot in my life. <laughs> I used to be a drummer in a rock band and kind of turned my life around, got in a really serious car accident when I was like 20. And that's when I went on to be a first generation college student to get a PhD in economics and do all this other stuff, you know, that I've been blessed to do now. But I still make, I still fail. And, and it's almost like the government wants that wall in between you and that entrepreneurial endeavor just to make sure that you don't fail or, you know, that, that, and that's what socialism breeds mediocrity because there's not this profit yeah. or loss where I can learn from things. It's that it's it's better for me just to sit here and let them take care of me than me pushing myself and potentially fail to where their big brother, they can come out and help you in some way. They can bail you out if they're the Federal Reserve. They can bail you out and send you checks if they're going to shut everything down. Why do you need the private sector? Why do you need your family? Why do you need to get married? Right. You can just trust us. We're the government. We're going to come in. And, and it's, it's just mind-blowing the hypocrisy that's out there and the um, depth with which government is now putting us in in so many aspects of our economy, whether it be the dollar or or the inflationary pressures that we have, you know, quote-unquote disinflation now. But as I know that you've been talking about and I've been talking about as I think it's going to creep back up pretty quickly, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is still highly bloated. We've got a lot of congressional, right. we got a lot of spending coming out of Congress and deficits for the foreseeable future. Um, and there's there's really no end in sight. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we're coming into an election year that some people really talk about. We've got to control government spending. That is the ultimate burden of government, as Milton Friedman said and others have said over time. But, but I don't see the big push yet to really do it because just when they start trying to do something, you know, like my friend Chip Roy and others will talk about this. Yeah, leadership doesn't want to do it. And it's like, we really got to start right. making a stand quickly because I, I think we're just heading in a, in a wrong direction, but I, I wonder what, what you're, what you're seeing out there. Yeah, I think we absolutely are. And eventually voters are going to wake up. You know, yeah. this is what we saw with uh, like Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. uh, the voters do have some point where they get upset at the, I, I think I was surprised at the results of the midterm last year. I thought that inflation had gotten people upset. I understand the votes are not there. What do they call it? Fortified votes. Yeah. Even controlling for that, which I think they've been fortifying for a long time. So, yeah. you know, I think we can still draw conclusions comparing one election to the previous one. Right. Um, and I was 
you know, I was surprised how little uh, anger and frustration was. I was surprised um, how many people were willing to give uh, the Democrats another chance. Yeah. And, you know, it's possible that because unemployment is not that high, that, you know, people haven't quite reached that 1970s boiling point. Now, part of the reason unemployment's not that high is because the government, I mean, we have this institutionalized, like, treadmill yeah. or assembly line where they crank people into government programs. And, it, you know, at that point, they're not even looking for a job. No, so, no. So that is a big reason for it. And, and the, sav- so and the savings, earlier point. savings, too, right? Because all the handouts, they just saved a lot of that and have been living off of sure. that for a while. Exactly. And and so that goes to your earlier point that the government spending in many ways is the source of the problems. It's not just about like putting on the green eye shades and trying to save a couple bucks. The government spending is the source of the cancer. Right. It tranquilizes voters so that, mm. you know, they're like being lured into this trap or I guess the frog in the boiling water. It's like giving them a drug that makes them sleeping. They don't realize the water is boiling. They don't react against it. And so in some ways, you know, I think that's why a lot of us uh, in the liberty movement sort of reach for the popcorn when we see things like bank crashes. You know, I mean, we know that the regular victims are going to get bailed out. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of thrilling to watch bankers go down. But more than that, I think it's because we recognize that that fiscally unsustainable treadmill, that is what it's what makes government bigger. It's also what makes voters not particularly care. You know, we saw with uh, Joe Biden was going to give, I don't know, $600 billion in student loans, take it from working yeah. class people, give it to rich kids, uh, trust funders, and nobody got upset. It's like voters didn't even see that as their money. You know, the student loan asset or uh, loans are one of the biggest assets of the U.S. government. Those belong to the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I ask the taxpayer for six hundred billion, I suspect they won't give it to me. Yeah. Um, but somehow people acted like the money was not real, and I think the reason they act like it's not real is because of that tranquilizing. Right. We can just print. You know, what was it? Six trillion that we printed up over the uh, the COVID yeah. events, and it. it you know, uh, people believe that it can just keep going on forever. That it's painless. So until I think either the uh, economy crashes bad enough that we get a kind of 1970s outcome in that situation that I think we, you know, sort of replay the 1970, the uh, 1980 election. So, you know, Carter got kicked out, Reagan was in. If that doesn't happen uh, in the near future, then, you know, I think the most likely trigger to really change things is just going to be financial markets blowing up. You know, we have so many trillions in new debt pouring out. Most of the organizations that have traditionally bought American debt, uh, the Fed for one, uh, Japan, China, uh, you know, countries in general would buy uh, U.S. bonds in order to hold as assets to stabilize their currency. A lot of those guys are now moving away from that. And so if you've got all this debt pumping out of Joe Biden and nobody's buying it, then you start to get a lot of disturbances in markets. So that could be another thing that would change the trajectory. But until one of those two things happen, either we get an economic crash or we get a financial crash, I think we're going to keep going for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because I, I think underneath the surface, you, you talked about the unemployment rate looks good. What is it? Around 3.5% right around there. I mean, that, yep. that's to be full employment. But we've got to think about all the people yeah. who haven't come back in the labor force, you know, and they talk about, well, Joe Biden's created 12 million jobs. Well, by the way, presidents don't create jobs. <laughs> first, first of all, well, um, he's he's 
he's counting when they got rid of the lockdowns. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The build back up. And so really, we're only about, I think, 3 million jobs above where we were February of 2020. Right. Well, it's like, by that standard, how much money did you make while you were asleep today? How much yeah. money do you make while you're awake? My yeah. God, it's an, it's infinite. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's so, right. And, yeah, and it's, so it's, it's, it's kind of like one thing after another. And, and you know, it's um the, the storm that that is really just brewing, ready to take mm -hmm. over the economy. And it's unfortunate because it's about humans. They're thinking about it as winning votes and and how can they turn this this knob to make themselves look better. But these are people that they're crushing. They're crushing the hopes and dreams, yep. particularly of millennials and, and Generation Z. Like they're not going to be able to afford homes for for a while if they can afford no, other things. Correct. They're, right. they're staying home with their yep. parents. You know, I'm doing okay. I, I locked mine in at what 2.8% or whatever it was before all the rates started going up in my mortgage. And so I'm doing well, but now you're paying over 7% is the average mortgage rate. So the, the, the amount you're paying per month is double. I, it would be tougher for yeah. me to be able to afford that <laughs> given what, you know, that are income now. And, 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 it, and these people are going to have even worse problem over time with social security, Medicare, these other major problems that a lot of people don't want to touch. And I don't know where you're on this, Peter, but I, I really think we have to, at some point before we see the crash continue to come, let, let's start making some cho different choices, you know, today. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, I really feel for the millennials and the Gen Zers. They vote like crap, okay? But yeah. um, but keep in mind they're also they're also swinging right very quickly, at sure. least on economic matters, because of exactly what you're talking about. Their life sucks. Yeah. You know, what I mean, they, yeah. you know, the jobs are low wage. Yeah. All they know at this point is inflation. Uh, houses have just, uh, uh, you know, the uh, median home price. You know, when you pair that up with what's happened to mortgages, it's yeah. more than doubled. If you're looking at the median house right now at the current uh, mortgage rates, you're looking at something like 2600 a month. Wow. So if you're a millennial couple, even if you both work, 2600 is a chunk of change. That's going to be half your income, even with two incomes. Yep. As a middle class young couple in your 20s. So people are just going to postpone it. Yeah. And they're going to get to an age where, you know, they're going to look around them and they're going to be like, what was it all worth? And then they get bitter. Yep. Yep. No, that's right. And, and um, you know, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, Peter, I, I, I want to let maybe in the, in the future about some other sort of policy initiatives, some of the big things that I would like to see to start off and get your, your, your thoughts is, you know, I'd love to see us in the fed as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I, yep. I don't know when that's going to happen. Maybe that'll be sooner, hopefully in my lifetime. Uh, but until then, we need a, a strong fiscal rule that we should go back to one mandate of just price stability. That's the only thing that mm -hmm. they really control. So let's get back to that um, and get rid of everything else that they're doing. You know, reduce the size and scope of of what the Federal Reserve is doing, I think would be key. I also am highly in favor of a spending limit at the, for the fiscal, right, for the for the federal government. Just like for the states, I mean, 37 states have a spending limit. We should also have that at the federal level. And then that would help with a lot of our fiscal and economic situation. But, uh, but I wonder what other things that, that you're thinking about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Jim Grant, he calls the dual mandate. Um, he says the Fed has a dual mandate. It's arsonists and firemen. <laughs> there you go. And yeah. the, the dual mandate, of course, is the idea that uh, they're supposed to control inflation and they're supposed to artificially stimulate the economy. These are always at odds, obviously. Mm -hmm. So, right, the single mandate is a very good start. Warren Buffett has a joking proposal. He says if Congress can't pass a budget, sorry, if they can't balance the budget, 
then everybody in Congress has to immediately resign and they are banned from politics for life. This yeah. would sharpen the mind. They would right. somehow find a way to balance the budget. You know, now they tell us it's absolutely impossible, cannot be done. They would find a way. So, right, we need some sort of outside constraint that forces them to balance the budget. That could be a balanced budget amendment. That ain't happening anytime soon politically. Uh, the alternative is gold. And yeah. you know, gold's not going to happen realistically until fiat collapses. Fiat does... Uh, Paper money does not go away on its own. Mm. So, you know, we are not returning to the gold standard anytime soon. It took, I mean, it, it, it was about a 50-year battle to get us on the gold standard in the first place. You know, starting with um, Andrew Jackson, you know, they, they kept dropping us off. Finally, I think it was McKinley who got us on uh, when it lasted 40 years and then FDR busted it. So, but anyway, right, some kind of hard money. It could be gold. It could be Bitcoin. It could be a combination of commodities. I don't care. But as long as there's some constraint, on what they're able to spend. And then the other request I would have is the Tenth Amendment is real. Mm. It exists. It's not imaginary. Yep. And, yep. You know, what it literally says, uh, the powers not delegated are reserved for the states, comma, or for the people. So th there's, I don't know, something like 20 things that are listed out in the Constitution for what the government's allowed to do, the federal government. They are not allowed to do anything else. It would be illegal for them to do anything else. By the way, anything else includes running money and having a federal reserve. That is not delegated. Mm -hmm. it, they are allowed to um, confirm that the alleged value of gold is as advertised. Okay, yeah. so if you say you have a one ounce gold coin, the government's allowed to make sure that that coin has one ounce. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And literally gold, yeah. uh, gold and silver, nothing else. So it is, um, they have pulled all of these. I mean, these are illegal powers. The Federal Reserve is illegal. Almost everything the Treasury does is illegal. The vast majority of departments in the federal government are not delegated. Uh, what you've got uh, state, uh, Treasury, just like to pay your bills uh, and post offices. You don't have much beyond that. You have military. Mm -hmm. So that would be a nice start is yeah. simply having a Supreme Court with a backbone who says, number one, you know, 10th Amendment. So almost all of government is illegal. You're gone. Uh, auction off the uh, <laughs> office buildings. And, yes. you know, maybe the, the workers can find something useful to do, like working at McDonald's. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, part of that would be that legal tender laws are not delegated. So those are utterly invalid. In fact, they were passed, they were passed during uh, the Civil War. And what did they do uh, right after? It was Ulysses Grant packed the court with two railroad men. Mm. And railroads were really, really interested in having legal tenders so that they could pay off their debt with greenbacks, which were confetti at the time. Mm -hmm. All right. So the Supreme Court addressed the question of legal tender, which is the requirement that, or it, it's, um, it's the power for government to tell you uh, that you have to accept something, right? So today in the U.S., you have to accept dollars. Uh, and that very power, right, the Supreme Court, right after the Civil War, they said, no, it's not delegated. Hmm. The government has no power to mandate use of the dollar. Ulysses Grant, he found these two railroad men, jacked them on the court, and they revisited the exact same question like three months later, and lo and uh, behold, uh -huh. they had evolved in their legal Surprise. understanding of the issues yeah so yeah. anyway going back to that you know if yeah. you get rid of legal tender uh if you get rid of the fed it, it, you essentially i mean you gotta have a currency you will have either gold bitcoin or something similar so if we simply had a supreme court that interpreted the constitution the way it is clearly written then we would actually be there in a jiff yeah well i i, I love it i think it's something that gives the audience something to think about and chew on for a while and 
Um, I, I really appreciate the conversation, Peter, and I hope that we can continue to work together on some things uh, in the future. And uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it'd be fun. And uh, God bless you and, and your family. And and um, and thank you, thanks again for being on Life People Prosper Show. Of course, man. This is a joy. Awesome. Well, for the audience, please go out and leave us a five-star rating if you enjoyed this. And please share with your friends and family. Um, and until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>